I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers play with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Volume number three, issue number 129, the Roll for Initiative podcast. I am DM Vince, sitting alongside DM Nick. Hello, everyone. And we are the only two men in the consoles today. <laughs> we had to run the place. <laughs> That's right. We took Matt and Chad and we threw them out the door and we decided we're going to be the only ones here. Yay. Oh, I mean, oh. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> nah, they couldn't join us this week, but uh, we stayed here to man all four chairs. So we're going to be talking double time this week. Yes. So those of you who don't like us too bad, ha, ha, ha. Hardy, har, har, hardy, har, har. So this episode, we're going we're gonna to dig into our mailbag because we have a lot of emails again, a lot of comments. We have a long voicemail with comments. Would and you we'll, say we have a plethora? We have a plethora. That is correct. Oh, see. So this will be letters plethora? to the editor number four. All right. We're up to number four ready for letters to the editor. Cool. Yeah. So let's jump right into things. And okay. first, let's just check out our stars. I'm going to read it this week because... I found it, and Nick didn't, so ha. Har, har, har. It's from DM Brian. He gives us five stars, and he said, I started listening to RFI last spring, starting with number 85. And once I got to the end, I started over with number one, listening to the new ones as they arrive. The host lineup has changed over time, but they still deliver a mixture of entertainment, information, and fun. I don't find every show exciting, but they snag my attention 90% of the time, which is great. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, DM Brian. Well... DM Brian, thank you so very much. As long as we have the attention 90% of the time, that's good enough for me. Hey, 90%, that's an A. That's definitely an A. I'll take it. A minus? A minus, yeah. We, okay, there's room for improvement, but I'll take that. Yeah, room for improvement, Nick. Hey. <laughs> you're that, what can I say? You're that percent's bringing us down. No, I'm kidding. All right, so let's uh, head into some sage advice. Okay. Sage advice. So our sage advice this week, we're going to be reaching down into that mailbag. First, we're going to just play uh, listener voicemail that came in about a week ago. It's a little bit long, about nine minutes, close to ten, but uh, the uh, gentleman is called in. He's going to be commenting about a bunch of things, so we'll let you listen and see his feedback, and uh, we'll be right back after that. Uh, G'day chaps, it's the uh, Goblin's Henchman here. I just um, was listening to episode 126 and um, I just wanted to make a few comments. I've actually previously left a message on episode 106 about getting back into the game and uh, the comments I was given were very helpful. Um, so in that regard, I've, I've got my, my old books out and sort of been reading through them and um, also been sort of writing my own, my own dungeon to sort of 
we spark off you know the imagination so um when i heard the message from andrew brackets outlander 78 about crypt it made me sort of think about the same problems i've been having about trying to um motivate um and trying to make the, the the sort of setting interesting now my my one isn't about my dungeon isn't about um crypts but um, what I thought about the things I've been trying to incorporate is trying to, for example, look at ways to motivate the, the players. So, for example, if uh, if they want something from the centre of the dungeon, sort of like the or the crypt, something like the ch- a chalice of healing, maybe there there's the, the creeping death is of that's causing all sorts of diseases around the around the town or wherever they are. Maybe a couple of players catch catch this creeping death, so the um, the players are no longer um, only interested in um, getting to the centre, but actually because they've got it themselves, they they now now when these twenty zombies turn up, they're they're not just twenty zombies; they've got a hack through their their twenty zombies are standing standing in their way of actually getting what they want, which is you know a cure. So maybe that's one way to do it. So you know, makes the, the standard monsters more of a challenge or more interesting. The other thing is maybe to mix it up a little bit. Um, some of the ideas that I, I sort of thought about before my last message I cut off on um, is maybe something like an undead rust monster. So suddenly the players have confronted with something they are out of their comfort zone. Is do they treat this as undead, and or do they treat it as a rust monster? You know, what's what's the best way of going about it? And, and maybe you can, you know, mix up, mix it up a bit more, because maybe the, the rust monster is no longer through its process of becoming undead in whichever way it became. It no longer affects metal; it affects organic matter like um, leather armor, boots, cloaks, magic spellbooks, things like that. So um, it's 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 different to what they're expecting. Or maybe it's got both the properties that I mentioned. One, maybe that affects leather, but maybe also organic matter. Maybe also 25% effect time fix um, metal as well so you've got this scenario where you know maybe the fighters are hanging back they think of a rust monster but in fact you know they're sending the thief and, and his boots and his armor erect I don't know just something like that the other thing is maybe to combine the two two kind of monsters together like uh, a gelatinous cube with like skeleton warriors or some form of you know other form of undead so you know maybe they finish dealing with the gelatinous cube and um, they're going through the loot and then suddenly this, this skeleton reaches up and grabs them by the by the neck or you know if they're sucked into the cube they've also got to um, um, <laughs> you know they're, they're in the cube and now this this this, this skeleton is, begins to go grab them or something so just got to freak them out take them out of their, their comfort zone and um, actually the other, the other thing I was <laughs> Um, I thought of in my my last call, which I think got cut off, was this idea of um, maybe something like a spider mummy, which is uh, took me a while to sort of thrash it out, but I, I kind of came to the idea of why not have like you know you faced with this this mummy that shoots spider wrappings from its fingers, and if you get you get wrapped up in that those um, those those bindings, you can then be converted into a spider mummy. So it's a bit like a normal mummy, but it actually sort of uh, is you know, slightly different, but the other thing I thought is maybe actually it's instead of being un- true undead, it could be like one of these yellow musk. I think it's a yellow musk or yellow. There's a, basically like a creature in the fiend folio, I think, which is like a has a picture of a, a plant growing out of a skull. 
And um, in that regard, the, this, this is a roadkill of it, but it, instead of turning you into a zombie, it turns you into maybe one of these spider mummies. So you can you sort of pick, you know, maybe it's not a plant, maybe it's a mold, like a big mushroom. You, know, you can see the players coming into a room. There's all these spider webs everywhere, and these these, these sort of bodies wrapped in in silk silk wrappings hanging from the ceiling. The players and some suspicious of cav caverns nearby. Or players are thinking giant spider, giant spider, giant spider. But in fact, it's um, they might go that you know they the fighters go off to guard these holes while they kind of cut down these bodies to sort of save what they think are victims. But in fact, they've they've just you know put themselves right in the firing line of these spider mummies and maybe they smash up these these mushrooms which you know release these spores which uh have a chance of infecting the players with the, the disease so they're not you know they think they're undead but no they're not they're, they're something else anyway just sort of things to mix it up a little <coughs> just a couple other points um i think dave the moderate also rang in about um converting people to one e first edition obviously um i just listened to the first episode of the podcast volume one episode one and i think this was actually dealt with we talked about uh, a primer fade indeed that contained fours then rules for um uh principles underlying ad and d so i think that's a sounds like a good place to start um maybe try to get that hold of that that primer the only thing i would add is not not to diss um i'm not suggesting anyone saying this but not not a good idea to say just emphasize why AD&D is good not why the other systems are bad it's always better to be positive but I'm, I'm sure that's probably re fairly reasonable um i also quite like the uh the points made about um the taverns in in response to alan aka the rapid gerbils question and a good way of using sucking up money money mops i always find the players have too much money i remember the game i ran way, way back in the day in the 90s one of my players was a, I think it was a lawful evil dwarf, and the, character, uh, the player playing him was very, very, you know, quite an eccentric character. Anyway, he decided to spend the best part of his share of a dragon horde on some fine art. Now, given that he was a lawful evil character, his taste in fine art was slightly vulgar, shall we say. Anyway, I think he spent the best part, you know, several, several tens of thousands of GP on this artwork. Which he he rolled up and took to took with him into dungeons, and at one point I think they ran out of torches, so he ended up burning it as a as a, as a torch. So it's probably the most expensive torch ever used in AD and D. Anyway, quite an amusing uh, event in the end. Um, so yeah, I, I like ways of really getting players to use up their money because otherwise they have too much. Just final point about I think a point that Jonathan raised about the battle scenario now i think a lot of it, what people said were you know very valid points about that the players should always win or not win and if they lose maybe it's a good segue into another another adventure but i don't think anyone's actually covered the rules themselves what they might might how they might run one way i thought you could do this is to use miniatures now i don't really like miniatures as a general rule because it's not really what role playing is but this is a particular kind of scenario that this dm wants to explore and I thought one way to do it is to use lead figures where, say, one one lead figure represents a unit of, say, 60 orcs. So what you could do is have an orc with six hit points, and each of those hit points represents 10, 10 orcs. So you imagine, so you can have, like, 30 or 40 figures that each, you know, so represents the army. And so you could have, like, a human of seven hit points fighting... Um, 
and walk at six hit points, and he used to just use the standard rules, and that represents a fight between 70 humans and 60 orcs, and basically rolled hit as normal, just using combat rules, and I would say a miss actually would do quarter damage, because you're never going to have a battle like that where there's no casualties. So you can imagine the human fights the orc, you roll, first, first two rolls are both misses, but they do quarter damage each. Next roll, the orc hits and the human misses, so the human unit is destroyed and maybe the orc is left with two hit points. So at the end of that battle, what you're left is with 20 orcs standing, and <clears throat> that really represents, um, you know, not everyone's dead, but, you know, they are incapacitated or helping the wounded or, or you know, whatever, but those 20 units, 20, 20 men can move on. So, for example, if those two hit point, two hit point orc gets through the gate, well, maybe that's to the city gates, maybe that's when the players go down to deal with those, those that unit of 20 orcs. Anyway, just a, an idea about how 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 the battle might itself really be run using a very simple mechanic. Okay, wow, that was a long voicemail, Nick. What do you think, right? Okay. Well, well we said you record as long as you like, so. <laughs> yeah, he did, and yeah, nine or ten minutes—that's cool. I can deal with that. It was kind of like a you know, kind of like a DM Julia voicemail. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Okay, great. So let's reach down in the mailbag now and read those emails. Okay. And if you want to write us, it's uh, rfistaff at gmail.com. Or if you want to leave a long voicemail, just leaving a comments, just talking about the show, or you want to do your own segment, 570-865-4210, the hotline. All right. First email comes in. and uh, it... You want to read that? Or you want Go ahead. Me? You can read that one, Nick. Okay, sure. Um says, uh, Jolly Ho, ROI. I think it meant RFI. I think that's a typo. So, Jolly Ho, RFI. Sorry this is going to be long. <laughs> I am a new listener. I am a somewhat... I am somewhat new to DMing. I am running my first successful game of basic D&D slash a and mixture. We are playing Module B2, and for everybody out there, that's Keep on the Borderlands, right. with two players and myself until we get a third. My group has only about 40 to 45 minutes a day to play and wanted to know what are some good ways on maximizing play. B2 Keep on the Borderlands is a large adventure. Do you have any ideas on structural ideas, how to keep each week? Can we be conclusive so that my players won't be stuck on a standard encounter at the end of each week? Okay, so we'll take that first part right there. Okay. I guess one thing you could do is just take out the whole keep part as far as go, what's going on there and just get right to the caves of chaos. That's probably what I would do. If you're on a real short amount of time to play, like you said, 40 to 45 minutes a day, that's not a lot. I'm, sounds like he's playing during school time, maybe during recess. I don't know. Could be a free period. Yeah. So I would probably forego the going into the keep itself and just have it on the side and just have the the adventure party going right into the caves of chaos. Also, I would also recommend I would also recommend is uh, having at least two NPCs for the DM to run, so there could be at least four in the adventuring party. So. That that should help. So having just two 
party members going to the Caves of Chaos, I think you're asking for a lot of trouble. No, I would I would say, no, don't have NPCs. Do it like we used to do in the old days when we didn't have people. Go to town, recruit hirelings. Well, that too. That could work as well. Yeah, sure. Or do a combination thereof. I don't know. Why but that's, uh, that's at least as far as kind of abbreviating and getting right into the meat and potatoes of the thing, I would take out the keep itself and just leave it on the side for maybe further... Uh, uh, if maybe future investigation. Um, also, due to the certain things like our paladin donating money has been brought up yet. <laughs> What's a good house rule for this? I really wouldn't uh, worry about it. I wouldn't really, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it right now. Just as long as he is actually going mm-hmm. to take the money along the side sometime, he's actually earmarking a a certain amount of money for later on. He does have to donate it all the time at once, you know, each time he goes into town, just, you know, as long as he does it sometime. Well, just, if you go into town, just give him the opportunity and tell him that, you know, you're going to a new town. It's a new town that they're kind of poor. And maybe you can look at the paladin and say, this is a good opportunity to maybe give back to the community and let Mm -hmm. him do it from there. Uh, he also continues, how can I get my players to be more interested in role-playing their characters? I've been doing my best to act out actions of monsters or situations. Yet, what's some good situation I can put them in to try to get them to role-play instead of slaughtering a slaughter fest every time? Well, huh. since you are only got about 45 minutes a day to play, I think what you might want to do is maybe one session you're going to have maybe real combat heavy and the next session role play and just kind of alternate, you know, that's how I would do it. I think that's how I would do it. I don't know if you could really pull off doing both in one session in about 45 minutes. I would kind of split it up to where if I could, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. And we're talking about a a, a module here, something that's already prepackaged and everything. So it might be a little bit more difficult to do. Especially with 45 minutes. Like, we don't know why he's chosen 45 minutes, but like you said, Nick, it could be because of in-between classes or something, study yeah. hall. Yeah, I have no idea what the uh, the circumstances are, but that's one way I guess you could do it. You know, maybe you have one s- session almost you know, completely dedicated to combat-related type stuff, while another session is more of a role-play type thing. See, so. I'm thinking because it's only 45 minutes, these guys are just like, well, I want to get some action done, and I don't have time for this role-play stuff, so that's kind of why it's like that. Yeah, it kind of sounds like that to me, too. I'm thinking if you expanded your time to, say, another hour and make a two-hour session, then you'd have plenty of time, and they probably will not just be a slaughter fest. They're probably just sitting down going, all right, man, let's go kill something, get some money, woo! Yeah. Probably all they're thinking. (laughs) Kill monsters, take their stuff. Rinse and repeat. So, and lastly, since I am new to DMing, would be a what would be a fun descriptive adventure module to run after B two? Thanks so much, Master Sages Colin. Well, a what do you think, Vince? Descriptive uh, module, fun and descriptive adventure module. Oh, jeez. Uh, what was Dungeonland is a very descriptive module. I'm thinking offhand, right? Dungeonland is, but yeah. you're jumping like levels big time there oh keeping with levels and 
Let's see. I, I would probably go to B4, but that's not that descriptive, though. Uh, I um, I would think if you're saying if they're still going to be only like second or third level, I think a good follow up to that. And I know other people have done it, too, from Keep on the Borderlands would be uh, module uh, N1 against the cult of the reptile god. What about that, has a, that, that module, for some reason, has a has a sweet spot for me. What about- I mean, it was written for, uh, I if I'm remembering the history, it was originally written for basic D&D, but yeah. uh, they they actually got it into first edition AD&D, and uh, it's got a little bit of everything. It's a very descriptive town. It's got an interesting little uh, mystery going on in the town, and you got a little bit of town adventure. You got a dungeon adventure. You got some wilderness stuff in between. That's, I think it's a good module for everything in between. And after that, who knows? What about uh, Secret of Bone Hill? There, there's another good one. Yeah, that's a very good. That's uh, very module. good coming up because Halloween's coming up. That'd be perfect. Yeah, Secret of Bone Hill, very good one too. And that one's a little more sandbox like, if I if I remember correctly, it's a little more freeform in that regard. That one's got some interesting town of Rettensford, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's part of that Lendor Isle series of modules that Len Lakofka did back at the t- back in the day. Yeah. Oh, it goes and, right to level two, which is the Assassin's Knot. I forgot. Yeah. About. Yeah. Yeah. Levels two to four on that one, and uh, and going back to the Reptile God one, it says levels one to three, but I honestly think it's probably better suited for mo- levels two to four or even three to five because of the big bad guy at the end. Hmm. So, so either one of those, in fact, it, why not just like plunk a couple of plot hooks after sometime near the end of when you're running the module uh, and they could pick each one where they go to, you know, hmm. that's what, that's what I do as a DM where I, I have a start off point. But after that, when they're done with the adventure, I'm going to have like five or six, uh, other little plot hooks, if you want to call them. I don't know if we would call them plot hooks, but seeds to other adventures, you know, laying out a few for some breadcrumbs. And wherever the party picks, they pick. Right. And and just kind of go from there. That's how I do it. I don't want to feel like that they're being railroaded in a, to a, into a particular adventure. So that's that's how I kind of do things. Gotcha. All right. So thank you, Colin, who uh, wrote that email in. Yes, thank you, Colin. Our another our next one comes from November Druid, and he's just dropping us a note telling us uh, Adventures Dark and Deep, which we did do a review of a while back while well, it was still in its uh, beginning stages. It's infancy, if you will. <laughs> I really didn't want to use that term. I don't know. It didn't seem right. Infancy. I don't know. But anyway, thank you, Nick. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, Adventures Dark and Deep is now out on sale at Drive Through RPG, Player's Handbook, Game of Sky, Beast Three have been released. Maybe you guys could do another review on the, or show on this product. I've gotten the books and they seem very well organized and clear. Considering making this my default game rule set, I haven't looked at the final product since we've reviewed it. Uh, I haven't heard any complaints except for one, and that the print is way too small. <laughs> Oh really? I, you know, there was a couple people complaining, saying the print was small, but that be, could be just just Grognard's, you know, bad vision. Well, you just zoom in on it if you got a PDF of it. There. No, done. I think it's the people with the actual book are saying that. Oh well, get a magnifying glass. Yeah, and put it up to your face or something. <laughs> no, Facebook, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> 
Or like uh, I had a GM uh, when I was going to a convention in Pennsylvania. He had those uh, those goggle things that you know the jewelers wear for <laughs> magnification. Oh no, kidding! He used to put that on because at the end of the night he got so tired he couldn't see. Wow. And he he, was, he had pretty thick glasses. He was an older guy, obviously, but yeah. And he had pretty, he had to put those on. He was like, oh, I can barely see oh, the end of the night. Boy, things I get to look forward to then. Yeah, Nick, you're getting close to that, right? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm 42. I'm not old. Oh. Anyway. That's why I at least keep telling my kids. Not a problem. We can uh, look into it. We'll get Joseph back on the show, talk about it. Maybe he'll give us a yeah. little preview copy again, and we'll take a look at what it looks like. Why not? Sure. Okay, sure. so we have another couple emails here. Okay. Uh, we have one coming in from Tommy. Not Tommy Boy, Nick. Hello, Tommy. Yeah. What he wants to know, I guess he's a new DM. So, what books should I get to run a full campaign and have places to pick and choose from, such as options? Hmm. I'm just getting into things. So many books with so many rules. Not sure what to do. So he's looking for some advice. Well, Nick. Well, I would just I would start with the core three books. Obviously, Dungeon Master's Guide, Player's Handbook, and the Monster Manual. Uh, those are your essentials. And beyond that, well, if you, if anything, at least get an expanded list of magic items and other spells to unearth arcana. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to use the new uh, level limits for all the multi-class races or the new classes. I, I know I can open up a big can of worms here about people who not liking the Cavalier and all that, but I'm not going to go there. Hey, it was revised. I know. I know. People tend to forget that dragon issue. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes, you could pick up Unearthed Arcana. It's uh, give you some more options as far as character classes and more spells and magic items. Right, right. Um, and uh, if you want, if you're talking maybe just like more monsters. Yeah. Fiend Folio Monster Manual too. Uh yeah, I would definitely pick up the three core books. Yep. I would probably pick up if I was telling someone brand new and they didn't didn't know what to pick up, I'd say the first core three books. That's gonna be your staples. Mm-hmm. Monster Manual too, obviously but to expand your, your monsters. If you want something wacky, Fiend Folio. Mm-hmm. I would say if they want to add a little flavor to their campaign. Maybe a little different. Dragonlance. Pick up the Dragonlance sure. Adventures. The Dragonlance Adventures book, yes. And then maybe look into the modules for that. Uh, I'd also say pick up some of the best of Dragon uh, Magazine volumes. Because mm-hmm. that always has some good NPC classes in it. That also has some... Uh, I believe it has some monsters in it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. some monsters. Also re- uh, new classes. New, uh, maybe even revised classes from some old ones. I know there was a couple articles like where some people revised the monk and the bard class, and I always thought they those were very good. Yeah, I'd also scour the internet and pick up uh, uh, Labyrinth Lord and Advanced Edition Companion mm. just for a new and different look a look at First Edition D anD. Mm. Uh, I also pick up. I don't know if Osric has any many major changes in it, but there's a lot of good house rules in Osric that might explain rules inside First Edition that you don't understand. I definitely always tell new people pick up Osric if you don't want to, you know, spend the money on those new books that Wizard puts out. Right. 
Uh, pick up yeah. Osric, play a, a quick start adventure, a quick little, you know, adventure with your friends, see if they like it. And if they do, then, you know, toss Osric to the side, no offense to the Osric guys, and pick up the uh, first edition books himself. So that's probably the best route. Test it, yeah. see if you like it. You like it, get the real stuff. Not not saying Osric isn't real. I don't want to insult right. those people, but it's not D&D first edition in my eyes. It's right. very, very close with their house rules. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah, it's it's their D&D vision. first edition with some house rule stuff. Yeah, it's their and vision. You can find a lot of the stuff on classic D&D, classics D&D, or dndclassics.com, I think it is. Uh, dndclassics.com, yeah. Yeah, dndclassics.com, where... Uh, you can pick up a lot of the classic adventures and books and what have you as PDFs for a pretty decent price. So it's quite all day in my house, and then Sons of Anarchy come by apparently. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there you go, Tommy. I would definitely go with that. Uh, other than that, I can't think of anything else. Uh, maybe a, yeah. if you really, really want to dive into things, like Nick said, Unearth Arcana, you can use that. Though a lot of people don't like those rules, mm-hmm. and uh, don't forget what we what we've always said in in our podcast is it's always rulings, not rules. If you forget something, that's okay. As long as you, if you make something up on the fly, as long as you're consistent with it through your campaign, hey, that's cool. It's not a big deal. So, and you don't have yeah. to know all the rules at the same time. I mean, the really the only thing you really need to know is 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 combat how combat goes. You know, yeah, that's rolling true. for initiative and doing all your actions and, you know, and even then there's a little bit of leeway. You know, you can you can house rule stuff. You don't want to do a D6 initiative. You can do a D10. You can do like what they do in basic role-playing system. You can go by just by the decks of the per, of the characters. You know, however you want to do it. Yeah, you can do uh, the second edition method, roll a D10. Do the third yeah. edition method, roll a D20. It's up to you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, as long as you're consistent in it, and yeah, that's that's all. And the books are there. If it takes you a couple of minutes to look up a rule on, like, say, like swimming rules or something like that, no big whoop. There's an index back. Learn how to use that index. The glossary, great tools. So, and then there's always the Gygax method of just roll d6, high or low, depending on what you want your decision to be. There you go. <laughs> Always moves the game along. Roll D six. Game get higher than a three, you do it. Yep. Get higher than a four, That's you right. do it. That's all. Yep. Get That's higher right. than a six. Ha ha. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. You're all dead. TPK. Ha ha. All right, Tommy. Let's uh, move on to our next email from Steve. Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve. Steve asks, uh, I notice you guys don't do many reviews on OSR related modules. How come? Is it because they aren't actually D and D stuff, or because you guys don't like the OSR stuff? Okay. Well, <laughs> it's not that they're not. Uh, it's not that they are not um, original D and D stuff. Quite contrary, I li- I like a lot of the OSR stuff out there, um, and that I mean, I've been wanting to do. I think, in fact, there was a Blackstone's Vault. I think on a yeah, on did. a review of a module, Pod Master the Sinister Shroom or something like that. Yeah, you did. It was a that. while back. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've done some. Yeah, the uh, what the the anomalous subsurface uh, environment, the ASE modules one and two. Those were really cool OSR stuff for Labyrinth Lord, and they're totally gonzo in their that respect. So, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, 
Expeditious Retreat Press puts out some great modules. Well, I'll answer the question now. Okay. We love OSR-related material, and in fact, when I was on Save or Die as a host, we were reviewing it nonstop, constantly, because people were sending it to us. Mm Mm-hmm. And on RFI, we've always said, send us the material, we'll review it. If you want to come on the show as a guest while we review it, we'd like that. Absolutely. Nobody sends it, so. Yeah, so put it out there, everybody listening. If you have something that you want us to review, let us know. If it's one of your original things that you're putting out there, or if there's something that say, hey, you know what, I've seen this module, could you review this in the future? Let us know, we'll do it, Absolutely. Yeah, we do have to say it should be on uh, a website so people can download it pretty easy, like Drive Through RPG or Lulu, or sharing on uh, Google Drive so at least people can get it. Not mm-hmm. just you know, hey, we have this module, but it's going to be uh, you have to email me for it. No, we're not doing that. Oh no, 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 no. So yeah, and and in my opinion, I am so I'm glad that there are people putting stuff out there now. And it's so much easier than it was in the past. So, I mean, there's so much material out there that you can either use as written or modify to your own needs. There's there's a plethora. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> and uh, another email we got from Brad. He would like to know, what are your thoughts about allowing characters to level without using the training system and skipping the whole experience system as well? What about characters leveling every three to six sessions? No. <laughs> That's my answer. No. Okay. I like Any, the leveling and, system. Can you expand on that? <laughs> yes, I can. I enjoy the leveling system as a DM. I like handing out experience and keeping track of that stuff and letting my players grow and you know get happy when they level. Because if you just look every three sessions or six sessions, just like, meh. Yeah. What if you spend the entire session doing nothing except walking around town? Does that count? No, not really. Is yeah, that, is that I, really experience? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I could see it maybe getting rid of the training portion. I mean, you could get you could leave that aside, but as far as the experience point system, how do you quantify the for all the player characters? Uh, otherwise, how they uh, improve? You know, and like you're saying, what if you spend a whole session where it's like there's like no combat, there's nothing really going on at all, except like just going around town and everybody's doing their own little thing. How do you earn experience in that respect? How do you know? I mean, without something to to gauge their progression, I I can't see how you do it. Unless you're a DM who says... Okay, if they accomplish this task and this task and this task, you know, they can accomplish A, B, and C, then they level up. I guess you could do it that way. You could, yeah. But I, I, I think it'd be a little more difficult because then you're you're going to run into a problem with I don't know with 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 maybe encounters being you know way maybe too whack out of balance. I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I, I, I don't know if I could pull that off myself, but I guess a one way to do it, like I said, is if you written, if you wrote down as a DM and said, okay, if they accomplish, 
in the next three sessions these five particular tasks or plot points, then they can level up. I guess that's how you could do it. But that'd be just a little too weird for me. I like having it right there. Experience points from magic items and monsters and whatever. It's just easier. I, I understand the you know, it's hard for some people with the booking and the keeping track and thinking people cheat and everything like that. And well, and that's where you get to as being a DM to where you have all that stuff beforehand before you start the session. You have all the experience points for all everything, all the encounters and everything already there on the sheet. It's already there. So there's no, you know, you, there's no way of, you know, messing it up. But I guess you can see the thing about cheating and anybody who's cheating playing D and D, well, it's only cheating themselves. They're just a loser. 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 Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, I think we had one more from Professor Thork who wanted to know uh, about uh, why do NPCs have level limits? Well, they have level limits because they're NPCs and they have class. It's just like the player characters. So uh, they kind of fall within the bounds of the system unless you want to throw that out the window. So, I mean, there's got to be some sort of, you know, boundary within the rules in that, in that respect. I just, I don't understand why you wouldn't have level limits even for NPCs. I mean, they're just as limited as the player characters. There's really no difference if one's a non-player character. Yeah, I don't really follow most of those anyway. I don't really care. I mean, I know the book has level limits, but I never really follow most of the level limits. Unless it was well, one of those yeah. games I was, like, strict to the rules, so. Yeah, I, I don't either, but uh, for the most part. But if if you were, I mean, if there's level limits for, for L's for certain classes, then, you know, if you're going to have an elf NPC who's a fighter magic user, I mean, he's going to have level limits, too. Hmm. Yeah, I guess if you're imposing those, you'd have to do it. I would think so, to be consistent. Anyway, all right. So that's our emails for this week. Let's uh, let's jump right into uh, a new segment that's uh, come in this week. Uh, it's actually done by Ronald Korn. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called the Dungeon Master's Assistant. Oh, and uh, it's going to be basically kind of like your Blackstone's Vault, Nick, but it's more on the advice side than just kind of a review and thoughts on the module. He's going to be talking about different ways to improve things, how to work around things. Kind of like a Dungeon Master assistant. He's taking things and just giving you better ways to run it. Cool. I like it. Yeah, I believe... I'm not sure what the first one was exactly, because I did sit and edit all three at once, so they're kind of uh, going into my mind right now. Okay. But uh, let you listen, and we'll be back in, I think it's about uh, about 10 minutes, so back in 10. Welcome to our new segment entitled The DM's Assistant. The goal of this segment is to provide DMs with hints, tips, and tricks to make running their games just a little bit easier. Throughout my 30 years as a DM, I can safely say that designing campaign worlds easily falls into one of two camps. Those DMs who throw themselves fully into the world, develop each of the countries, the people, the religions, even the economy, and then those of us who wish we had the time to do that. So today's segment is using and adapting published adventures as the starting point for building your campaign world. First, it's important to think local, not global. One of the most common mistakes of any DM designing a world is to think too big. In your first campaign, your players are not going to need to know every known part of the world 
Their first adventure will take place locally, and there's no reason to believe that any of them have been outside the immediate lands they currently reside. This allows you to easily manage the creation of your world by purposely keeping the rest of the world dark. So how do you start? I've always found it easy to start by planning which adventures I'd like to run ahead of time, and then place clues and hints along the way to keep the players interested in the ongoing story. Now there is no need to reinvent the wheel here. There are many published adventures which can be used and even tied together to create your own home world, and there's no shame in using them. After all, that's exactly what they were written for. Here's the big reveal for DMs. You can edit, rework, rename, and crop sections of adventures as needed. One of my favorite series of AD&D modules is A1 through 4, the Slaver series. Unfortunately, A1, Slave Pits of the Undercity, starts at level 4. So in the past, you used to have to find a worthy adventure to run first. That was usually either B2, Keep on the Borderlands, or T1, Village of Hamlet, and then you'd have to work connections to the Slave Lords. Well, fortunately, that's no longer needed. Wizards of the Coast's newest release is a compilation of the Slaver series called Against the Slave Lords. The release contains all four A-series modules and a bonus prequel module, A-Zero Danger Dark Shelf Quarry, which was written by Skip Williams. Believe it or not, this new adventure was written for AD&D 1st Edition, and it fits in nicely with the other modules. The adventure takes place in a quarry just outside the village of Darkshelf, on the coast of the Sea of Girnet in Nairand. Running low on granite and limestone, the town was forced to dig deeper and deeper, and boy did they hit the mother load. Now carts of not only limestone and granite, but also pure quartz, and some say gold, are carried out on an hourly basis. But just like a great Scooby mystery, production's halted due to some freak accents and the sounds of cries, moans, and rattling chains. And the Scooby gang is forced to investigate. There's some great reasons to use this adventure for DMs on a time crunch. First, there are some great personalities, such as Basilia Rock, the fiery-haired dwarf who runs the quarry, and is much more than he seems. And later in the series, the Slave Lords are introduced, who are arguably considered some of the greatest and toughest villains of 1st edition. Also, remember, this is 1st edition, AD&D, so there's no reason you can't introduce the PCs to some of the Slave Lords early in the series. No such things as proper CRs or balancing encounters in a 1st edition AD&D. A glimpse of a ruthless act from afar, and the PCs recognizing they're powerless to stop it, can set up the rest of the adventures quite nicely. Second thing is that the module is very DM-friendly. The module contains bold links to where rules can be found in the 1st edition Dungeon Master's Guide. For example, there's one scene in the adventure where guards are throwing rocks from murder holes. The module discusses the potential damage of the rocks and then tells DMs that they can reference the rule on page 64 of the DMG for how to handle the misses. I ran to my DMG and voila, there it was. Now for those of us who remember how scattered and disjointed the first Dungeon Master's Guide is laid out, this was a great addition. That's certainly a 2013 design advancement on an adventure designed to work with 1st edition AD&D. It works brilliantly. Third, probably my favorite part of the danger at Dark Shelf is that Skip Williams gives the NPCs motivations and possible reactions to changing events. The adventure is filled with contingency plans. This is a very difficult thing for new DMs to foresee, the importance of making NPCs living and breathing people. NPCs should be people who react to circumstances and change. When the PCs do X, 
Do your NPCs do Y, or do they just remain an encounter in room 13, despite what goes on around them? This adventure does a great job at taking care of this for the DMs. In many room descriptions, there's discussions of what ifs. This is invaluable for DMs on a time crunch. Now, there are still a few things in this adventure you need to do, but here are some shortcuts to help you. Unfortunately, the town of Darkshelf is not fully developed in this module, and since PCs love to spend time in the town, you should probably have something at the ready. Now, creating a town will take time, and winging it just isn't a good idea. So another very helpful hint is this. Use a town that's already created. Use one that fits your need, and then change the name of it. In this case, plug in the coastal town of Saltmarsh. Saltmarsh was fully developed in the DMG2 for third edition. It provides NPCs in a fully fleshed out town, including a fishing district, shipyard, and a host of seedy taverns such as the Hoof and Mouth and the Drunken Urchin. You can even keep the connection to the haunted house. This allows you to do one of two things. First, you can either just establish a connection from the smugglers to the slave lords, or even run the series of U modules, creating even more of a sandbox for your PCs. So remember, when you miss that roll to detect that secret door you know is there, you always have the DM's assistant to peek behind the screen. Thank you, and good night. Well, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. I, I think this could be real handy for everybody out there. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to see uh, what the people think about that one. And uh, I know Ronald put a lot of work into that, and uh, he reads really smoothly. I, most people will talk, and they'll be like, uh, da, da, uh and uh, like he reads straight smooth. Good, uh, Ronald. Thank you for contributing to another portion of our of our little podcast. Absolutely, and obviously uh, he reads really well because he is a principal. So ah, okay. Well, I'll make sure not to cross him. I might you know be sent to the office. That's right, Nick. We're sending you to the office. Hey. Oh. Uh, so Nick, you told me you had a story about your gaming session this weekend. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, I guess kind of like coming down here to the end, near the end of the show, just kind of talking about, you know, our experiences in the past few weeks of like, you know, our gaming life. Uh, one of the things that we have done is, well, last week, you now now the kids game of Temple of Elemental Evil. Right. We were going to play that, okay. but a couple of people, a little ill. My friend Jeff uh, wanted to get into the game. He's like, I need to get out of the house. I need some do something else oh can i get in i'm like sure but a couple of people fell ill we couldn't have everybody there so i'm like hmm, what can we do so i have four people who can play i have my my friend jeff i have my daughter anna her friend savannah and jeff's son um not raceland but um god who who was it <laughs> but um and but Gavin, Gavin, his Gavin, son yeah. Gavin. Okay. So like, you know, they're all in their teens, and they all like horror. So I'm like, let's play Call of Cthulhu. Ooh. So <laughs> I just thought, okay, what the heck? It was, and it was kind of last. It was last minute. It was that Thursday, or or actually no, it was Friday night. I'm like, okay, what can I do? So, well, I'm going to do the classic adventure, the haunting, that which is out of the rule book. And it's a great starter adventure, one of the best ones of, of, of any system, you know. I mean, it's like Call of Cthulhu's version of Keep on the Borderlands. Right. So we had that session, and it, it went really well. They finished the adventure, by the way. Um, and I don't want to give away too much, but 
the the four player characters that we had, I have pre-generated characters. Uh, uh, Anna played a, a journalist. Her friend Savannah played a parapsychologist. Oh, okay. Um, Jeff's son played, <laughs> and a kid's 13 years old, he's playing an old 65-year-old professor. And Jeff plays a Catholic priest, which I find ironic because Jeff's an atheist. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but so he's like, "Yeah, I wanted to play." And you know, everybody play, role played their characters very well. They did went through the investigation, basically just to give a, just a rundown on on the premise of the adventure is, and one of the investigators or the group of investigators somehow gets contacted by a person who owns this this. Uh, home in Boston called the Gorb the, the Corbett house. And there's last people who were in the home the the husband and wife went mad, the children were sent to relatives in Baltimore and the realtor, I guess you want to say the person who owns it or the real estate agent who owns it, agency who owns it. They want to have someone to check out the property, make sure they they can give it like a stamp of approval, a clean bill of health. So they they had a few days to do some investigation beforehand. So they they were contacted on a Wednesday. I said, well, okay, the the agency says that they'd be able to give you the keys to the place sometime Friday afternoon, probably around 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And you have the weekend to check out the place, make sure it's clear of, you know, it's clean. And, it, and they could put it back on the market. So they found out some very interesting stuff about the Corbett house and who Mr. Corbett was and who he was associated with. <laughs> it, actually, it was it was really cool that how we went from something from like AD&D, which is really combat heavy for the most part, to a game to where it's mostly about investigation. Because... It's it's funny, like, Call of Cthulhu is like the antithesis to D&D. Everything you know in D&D, don't do in that game. <laughs> if it gets to combat, it's too late. <laughs> you find any books or magic scrolls, don't read them, you know? Yeah. So they did the investigation on Corbett and who he was, like, back in the 1830s. He bought this place, and there were some strange goings on. People did not like him. He was a lifelong bachelor, and they found out when he died, there was a they, the people on the street, majority of them filed a lawsuit against the executor of the will. And uh, the executor of the will was a some sort of reverend or, or minister of this very strange church down the road next near the street. So, and they found out more investigation how this particular church was more or less a cult and there was there was a police raid in 1912 that shut down the place so where did they go they went to the church they investigated that <laughs> they found they found a book <laughs> which they did not read a just character playing the priest like i'll just take this <laughs> i'm gonna give this over to the diocese <laughs> hands it over there's <laughs> like i'm not gonna read that at all no way I'm like okay good idea at least not right now. And then they investigated. Eventually they got to the Friday afternoon where they get to go and investigate the actual Corbett house. And they get there 
They investigate the first floor. There's nothing unusual, just like as if the place was immediately abandoned, you know, like whatever happened, no one cleaned up or anything. It was like as it was left like it was two years ago when this happened. Then they go up to the top floor, and they go in the one room, which was once at one point Corbett's bedroom, right? <laughs> so, and I, I gave the description of, okay, you go into the bedroom, and <laughs> and you go into the bedroom, and you see this old four-poster bed. And but there's no bed spring, no mattress. It's just a four poster bed, and there's an old dresser with all the drawers pulled out on along the side. So they go in, and I I just did a random roll of a d4, and I said, and all of a sudden you, parapsychologist, because she's psychically sensitive, oh, so I'm okay. playing her, suddenly feel like you're being watched. And as soon as you feel that, you hear the um, window panes start to rattle and it's rattling and rattling and rattling and she's like walking over to it as soon as you walk over to it, it stops dun 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 and then I really played it wasn't an adventure but I really played up there all of a sudden like next time you breathe out you see your breath so I'm playing the whole psychic cold angle you know Yeah. that there's a presence dun, dun, and I say as you guys are looking around you look at the ceiling right above where the bed is you see a pool of blood and it's starting to drip down where the uh where the actual bed and bed frame would have been and Joe's character the priest he's like i'm pulling out the roman ritual of exorcism and everything and i'm doing everything else power of christ compels you the power of christ compels you. i'm like okay you still feel kind of uneasy as soon as you kind of do that you you see the this this blood it starts to pool on the floor. It's like everything that just all that blood coming from the ceiling like went into reverse and went back up into the ceiling and it disappears. And they're like, "What?" <laughs> and then um, one of the other rooms, uh, they go into what would have been the, the two boys that lived there when the other the, the last owners were there. Apparently, they didn't do anything with Corbett's old room. They did not like it. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Um, they also noticed when they went to the parents' room that there was lots of religious objects around. You know, they were Roman Catholic Italians, and they had lots of crucifix and pictures of St. Mary and St. Francis and rosaries and what have you And then they're in their bedroom. They're like, okay. They go into the kids' room, and I just, just for the heck of it, I'm like, okay, you look around, and you see... In the corner, there is a marionette of a clown. Oh, dear God. And they're like, what? <laughs> and like, yeah, it's just sitting there staring at you. Creepily. Yes. So eventually they go downstairs into the basement area. They were able to get the lights back on. They figure out the fuse box. It goes downstairs where it's kind of like a workroom, kind of junk room. They're kind of fishing around there. The priest figures out that the the uh, downstairs area is not as big as the uh, an area as the main floor. So he figured out, okay, there must be a false wall here, and it's kind of obvious in a way. But as they're looking around, this is one of the things in the adventure where a dagger comes up. 
<laughs> starts floating. And this thing is controlled by Corbett. And they start fighting the this dagger. They're like shooting at it. They're missing and everything. The 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 priest gets out his sword cane. He's like trying to parry it. They eventually like he's somebody stomps on it, shoves it in an old toolbox. It's rattling around in the toolbox. Luckily nobody got hit. Good. They go through the false wall into this crawl space, and then they get to the other side through the second wall, the crawl space, and they see Corbett's body. It looks kind of like a mummy. It's like a mummified corpse. Several almost. A hundred years old, right? Yeah. Uh, the parapsychologist goes up to the body. And I said I wasn't going to do a spoilers, but you know what? What the heck? It was a fun adventure, so I'm going to continue. <laughs> so, all right, all right. They, they, uh, they, she goes up to the body. She's like, I'm going to touch it. And she sticks out her hand, and the priest goes, no, no, touch it. So what does she do? She takes her other hand, touch. Oh. <laughs> and so I say, as soon as you do that. You're dead. Corbett hand. Corbett's hand of the corpse tries to reach out and grab you. Every rolls their sanity, right? The parapsychologist fails. <laughs> she runs out of the place, runs upstairs, outside, and jumps into the car and pulls a blanket over her. That's going to protect you. <laughs> yeah. The professor fails his sanity roll and is rooted to the spot. Oh. Yeah. The only two people that did not fail their sand was the priest and Anna's character, the uh, the the uh, journalist, and she shoots at it a few times, misses, and and the corpse. It's not very, you know, it can't move that much. I was going to cast a couple spells before. Jeff's character, who said, it, yeah, before he came down, yeah, I have my duffel bag with the shotgun in it. I'm like, okay. So he's like, I'm waiting for the co- corpse to get point-blank range. I'm like, all right. So he's like, I want, I'm going to touch this corpse's, the barrel, the the end of the barrel of the gun is going to touch this corpse's chest. I'm like, all right. He tried, I roll in to see if he hits with his two claws. Misses. Terrible. And so... Point Blake rang with a shotgun. <laughs> Blows this huge hole in Corbett's chest. Still, and he falls to the floor. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Then he rises back up. <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> he did have, like, on his corpse, like, something like a, uh, it's called a flesh ward. It's kind of like an armor spell. Okay. And it adds points to, on top of your hit points. He had 18 points on a flesh ward. What did, what did Jeff roll for his damage from a shotgun? 18 points of damage. Took uh-huh. the flesh ward off completely. And then while he's, like, reloading, the the uh, um, Anna's character finally gets, like, three shots off and finishes off Corbett, and he turns to dust. So that's how they ended the adventure. They f- it, was a pr- it was really cool just to see how it all went. They said they had a great time. Well, good. Yeah, it was really fun. So sorry it was a little long, but that is a fun adventure. Yeah. You know, if if you ever get a chance to play Call of Cthulhu and you're gonna either a one shot for like Halloween coming up here. Yeah. The haunting is a great, great one shot game. And you could do it in one session. It's you could do it in five, six hours. It's so much fun. Cool. Yeah. 
I don't have any gaming. I didn't game at all in the past two weeks. Really? No, I just was between, you know, this and that. And this weekend I had to bring the cars in for maintenance and everything. So, uh, real life. Didn't it suck? But, uh, I did get to go to half price books this weekend. Oh, I gave you good finds. Oh yeah. I got some good deals. Half price books was having some major sales. So, uh, right here in, uh, the uh, Dallas Fort Worth area. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I spent a total of 20 bucks and I walked away with, uh, the second edition box set for Ravenloft, the Forbidden Lore. I think that's really? what it's called. Yeah, Forbidden Lore. And wow. it had the tarot cards and the fortune-telling dice not touched inside the original pack. So it was pretty much complete. It, absolutely. There was, nothing, there was nothing wrong with the box. It had a little tiny wow. dink in the right-hand corner. It was like somebody opened it up, and looked at like, it, eh. went meh, and put it on their shelf, and then said, oh, I think I'm going to sell it, and gave it to Half Price Books. Wow. Got that. I got Top Secret SI. Cool! That as well. Uh, everything was in it except the dice. Uh, there was only a little uh, a rip on the side of the box, but I don't care about that. Yeah, who cares about that, hey? The maps were still beautiful. The modules were fine. Cool. Uh, the books were fine. I also got a Top Secret module, which I've never actually seen. Oh, wow. It was from the original Top Secret uh, game. Oh. Set. Okay. Uh, which is compatible with both anyway, so it doesn't really yeah. matter. Uh, and I wound up getting the Shadowrun core book, second edition, the and the GM screen as well. Wow. And, so uh, oh, and the first edition player's reference screen. Oh, cool. All right, man. Which I've never had All a use for 20 before. 20 bucks. Yeah, I never had a use before, but it was marked at $1 clearance, so I said, hey, hey, snag. There you go. So that was what I got all this weekend. Very cool. Yeah, too bad you missed our our Marvel weekend last time, Nick. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. We uh, had some uh, some good times. Matt had some good times bashing Cyclops, so <laughs> he went on his little rant about that. That's okay. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's going to end the show this week. Yeah, just a little bit of everything this week, I guess, and a new segment. Absolutely. Very cool. Uh, you can send in your segment if you want to do a segment, a review, or maybe a Dungeon Master type thing like Ronald Korn did. Or maybe just you want to do some type of uh, thing like we used to have with uh, The Thane. You could do that as well. Sure. Oh, yeah. We'd love more stories like that. That would be very yeah. cool to have. Or if you want to leave a really long voicemail, 570-865-4210, our hotline. RFI staff at gmail.com. You can email us at... Or go to our website, rfipodcast.com, and click on Contact Us, and you can just fill out the a little form, and it'll automatically send an email to us. Mm. Facebook.com uh, slash RFI Podcast, and uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, but we don't really tweet, so <laughs> RFI Podcast. I don't tweet. I don't tweet. I just have the Twitter for RFI Podcast to just announce new shows. I figure Facebook is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I guess we'll sign off and see you guys next week, so keep it original, keep it old school, and good night, everybody. Night, everyone. for 
Initiative Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. Thank you.